Years ago, H.G. Wells visualized roads such as these in his science fiction fantasies. And today they're a reality. You're listening to the Afternoon Commute. I guess a, a riveting discussion. So I believe you are one of them, and uh, I, I just reached out. Oh, okay. All right. So I think uh, he's a so, former student of mine. I guess he listens to you. Okay. So okay. So um. Uh, so you haven't um heard like this the stuff we've talked about with architecture before? No, I'd, I'd be curious to know more. Yeah, we oh, were okay. just talking about like what uh, you know what we generally talk about our you know topics of discussion all that and uh, yeah we, uh, I was just explaining to Frank how it's it's more of um, a, a approach to things but kind of like with uh, you know applying critical thinking and and also we go into a lot of uh, cultural. Uh, cultural stuff about you know socio you know political cultural that type of approach. I mean, we we're just discussing. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Michael Cam and uh, Mystic Chords of Memory. It's a book about uh, you, you, it. It sort of uh, goes in depth in, into history and how uh, a lot of stuff that uh, is kind of taken for granted. I think generally by by a lot of people is is uh, sort of a product of, uh, you know, uh, people who are, you know, people who are, oh, you know, just name names like Rockefellers, the Ford, and how, you know, they have this um, great interest in uh, educating people on history. So you go into a lot of it, and it's like a lot of it, what you're presented with and take for granted that is something that's organic is actually not it's something that's fabricated or something that was kind of concocted for for the specific purpose of engendering uh idea of you know a, a collective sort of heritage or an or or um a, a cohesive narrative like a, an american narrative like manufactured culture manufactured culture and uh we, we go into a lot that touches on that, like how culture is, is, is manufactured or, uh, we also, yeah, we did, we just recently did, uh, another installment of the untold history of punk rock, which is oh, yeah. about, yeah. And then you go into looking at all the connections with all the different people who, uh, were prominent in, a, in starting up the, the whole, punk rock scene and the whole that and you know how a lot of it's like a really politicized and everything uh and then look at the cast of characters that uh come up in these discussions and and all the connections that they have and it's like well this is not organic whatsoever this is obviously some sort of uh concerted effort by people who are in power uh, not saying that necessarily that you know there is no organic, spontaneous culture, but you know it, 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 I I look at it as a uh, you know mass like culture, rock. yeah, or you know a lot of the or blues or, or a lot of music is co-opted it, and taken and formed into. It's like um, yeah, it it would be um, for the most part, it, mass culture for you know and 
we're not we're not coming at it from a perspective of of like a leftist or or right. We just look at it kind of objectively. Um, so like if you you know sometimes we'll use terms like mass culture or something like that, and somebody will send me an email. You guys are Frankfurt School people or something, right? And it's not like that at all. It's you know we're critical of the Frankfurt School too. So there's lots of you know just kind of looking at things from an outside perspective with no bias trying you know at least trying not to be biased but um uh looking at whether something could happen organically or not i guess and uh we did that with architecture in um a couple of uh episodes where we talked about how architecture like especially with modernist stuff yeah um was not and, and you know moving into postmodern and deconstructed deconstructionist type stuff i don't believe that i believe that's kind of cons- like a concerted effort because what what you're going to talk about here which will be interesting once we get the call going here is that there's that there's symbolism in architecture architecture is like kind of a wallpaper to life mm-hmm. um and if you deconstruct it People think someone like Tom Maine or like Frank Gehry, like they're nihilistic, but they actually are symbolic. They're showing you the symbol of the symbolism of deconstruction, right? So, well, it's, I don't have a necessarily high high regard for modernist, postmodernist architecture. Most architecture after World War II is is entirely vacuous and self serving. Um, oh, good. Good. Then you're in the you're you're, the, you're in the right place. Then. Well, Frank, you 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 have to try to maintain more objectivity than that. You can't uh, make. No, I, I'm oh. just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, but the fact is, is that yeah. uh, if you um, if, if you look at the modernist giants like Corbusier and uh, Mies van der Rohe, uh, their their entire raison d'être was rooted towards um, getting dictators as um, as patrons. And the entire modernist movement lies on these gross fallacies that were uh, perpetuated by um, CIAM and many other um, uh, European revivalist schools that tried to obliterate history. They had that um, the the whole merit of symmetry, beauty, proportion, mathematics and architecture was uh, just abominable. And so therefore, uh, uh, the 20th century sought to create a new uh, um, tableau of architecture. And in the end, it's all just completely self-serving, the cheap right. propaganda. And I have to say, it's practically a fatwa. I, I teach in the history of art. I, I teach history of architecture at University of Manitoba and uh, architecture students. And I could tell you this uh, without reservation, uh, architecture students in almost every institution of architecture in the world, save for maybe like three or four, and I could name them, um, have a dearth of historical knowledge. They are just they are just rammed down their throat are these cliches of modernist design and these abstract concepts which they themselves know nothing about. The professors know absolutely nothing about them as well. And unless you 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 uh, um, uh, design within this style, you're, uh, there's like a fatwa on you. I mean, it, it's 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 tantamount to a religion, and the the ayatollahs of the religion are the very great names like Gary and and whatnot. 
but um, the uh, there, there's a real uh, fascist uh, undercord to modernist design, which is completely devoid of any sense of, of taste, meaning, context, history whatsoever. So I don't really have much uh, 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 good things to say about the Athens Charter and Mies van der Rohe and Gropius and, and that clan. Well, that's good, yeah, because that's what we think. We think it was actually a concerted effort to, you know, along with modernist art and all that type of stuff, like you said, it's CIA, it's cultural Cold War funded. Um, oh, I see. It's, wait, what'd you say? C-I-A-M. Yeah, that's interesting. No, Have you ever read that book by Francis Stoner Saunders, The, the Cultural Cold War? No, no, I, I was re referring to a, um, it's an international congress of modern architecture that was founded in, I think, 1928 or 1930, something like that. Right. Its entire right. agenda was to change the face of, of public architecture, and they did. I mean, just look at architecture. Oh, and that, that, was, that was Rockefeller Foundation, too, that, that conference. That CIAM? Yeah. I don't think so. I think there's guys from... What, the guy's name's on the tip of my tongue. I can't remember. Albert. Um, I'd have to look it up in a minute here. But yeah, there were there were people. the the Rockefeller The Rockefeller Foundation, through the Modern Museum of Art, promoted the idea of the international style. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. It, and that was that was CIA funded too, as well. That was like. Uh, OSS, uh, what they called the Cultural Cold War, where they promoted the idea of the international style and modern abstract art, Jackson Pollock, Lichtenstein, all that stuff, for the purpose of, of creating a, a kind of apath apathy within art. And it was under the guise of fighting communism, which is bizarre because that type of style of art and that type of style of architecture is left-wing. Mm, like, yeah, politically. Extraordinarily so. Although it's, uh, it, it's chief proponents <laughs> were fascist. But, um, right. Yeah, so, you know, there's... Um, um, and it doesn't take a rocket scientist to realize that when you look at some of these abominable constructions that uh, you you know immediately that it, it is devoid of uh, of taste. You don't have to be some highbrow uh, New York uh, fashionista to realize that, no, actually, this is tasteless. The, the, the streaming windows are letting in way too much light. Um, this this makes no sense. There's no scale of uh, human regularity. Um, there's a great book by... Tom Wolf, um, which uh, viscerates modern architecture, and it, it's it's a real page turner. It's called um, uh, uh, from 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 ba from Bauhaus to our house. And oh yeah, know, yeah. yeah so it's, the other, it, another another good one is the architecture happiness. That's a, that that one. Well, I just. Uh, yeah, well, I, I just wrote the the review for my former professor's book. Um, uh, his name is James Stephen Curl, a, a, a great man, extraordinary um, uh, encyclopedic knowledge of of, of architecture, and uh, his book was called Making Dystopia, 
the strange rise of architectural barbarism. And it was, it was, it just exposed page by page the conceits and folly of architectural modernism. But even given the stature of, of him, I mean, he wrote the Oxford Architectural Dictionary of Terms. He, uh, he actually introduced me to the whole notion of Freemasonry and architecture. His book, The Art and Architecture of Freemasonry, was the landmark, the only book on the subject, and he wrote on Gothic revival, Greek revivalism, uh, pretty much any form and style of architecture. And um, uh, Oxford University Press ended up um, refusing to publish it. In fact, everybody refused to publish it because it was just a um, and, and it was just a blow by Blow, judicious interrogation of the the greatest sham in the history of architecture, which is, wow. uh, but no one no one published it. It's such a it's such a great book, and and he thought that my review might might help sway the the uh, the, the publishers, but sadly and and. And I think it's it, it's the, the greatest book that he, he's written, but no no one will no one will publish it. It's it, it's too penetrating and discerning a gaze into uh, contemporary architecture and design. Hey John, you still there? Did we lose you? Looks like uh, I think John got uh, disconnected. He's trying to call back in. You still there, okay. Frank? Oh, you're. Still I am. There. Yeah. Okay. Good. Uh, Here I am. Oh, there you are again. Okay. Good. What happened? Um, did it? Did it just disconnect? Or uh... no, I was I was uh, uh, trying to press mute for a second because I thought I heard the baby crying. But um. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. Was it? Isn't it uh, kind of the point? Is that you have this style of architecture, and I, I've, I've seen some of the stuff where it's kind of it it puts you it, it gives you a sense of sort of unease like to be around some of this stuff and i think that uh as bad as it is i think a lot of these architects and, and designers i think they have to have some in-depth knowledge of architecture to make something that bad i i you know like uh uh what's the name of Ka, Caborcier or how I, I can't pronounce French names, but um, you looking at some of his stuff, it's like, wow, I I don't know what you could you think. Okay, what what's the intent or what was the thought behind it? But it's 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 as if um, there is an intentional uh, sort of an intention to it, and then what the people's visceral reaction to it is is to to be adverse to it. But at the same time, it's like, well, you have to have uh, a, a, you know, know about, go about what, know what you're doing in order to make something that, uh, imposing or off-putting or, well, or sort Chris, of remember alienating. That, remember that one time you made a great point on one of our talks. You, you said you saw this interview with Frank Gehry and he crumpled up a piece of paper and he said, see, that's what I'm going for right there. Yeah, that's what he it's, actually did. That's, and that's, uh, kind that's, of... Oh yeah. Um, oh, he 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 is such a um, um, conceited egomaniac. But uh, funnily enough, a I have a, I, I teach history and also in the architecture department. And so every now and then I'll get students that might graduate from my my history program and and move into architecture, being somewhat inspired by the idea that um, 
architecture impinges upon every element of our daily life, our, the, the, the power and meaning of architecture. And then they, they end up in rolling into uh, the architectural school. And um, um, yeah, so a former student of mine did the very same thing. And he, he developed a whole language of architecture based on uh, proportions, much the same way that uh, Corbusier did with um, his version of the golden section. But he um, uh, and all of, it, all of his crits, his, uh, you know, the, these architects that, that come in and, and criticize the work of students just thought it was empty and, and lacked any, any order of precision. And so, and he'd worked on it for about a year and I'd look, I, I reviewed the work and I thought it was a plus work. And so the, the, his next critical exam, he basically did the same thing. He came in with a fedora hat. He, he walked with a bit of panache and style. And, um, uh, I think it was like 10 minutes before the class, he crumpled up a piece of paper, put it on his uh, podium and just walked around it and the, the, the crits were, were examining it and saying, oh my God, this is such a wonderful work. We're so glad that you had thrown out those, uh, uh, those regular, that regular canon of forms that you were trying to employ before. This is much more intellectually stimulating. And he's like, you assholes, I crumpled up this piece of paper. It's got zero meaning. It has no order. And, um, uh, but, and I, I wish I was making this up, but this, this actually happened and I know this to be true. Um, so, um, maybe he, he listened to, to Gary. It's, um, no, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, and then, uh, then, then they have this, uh, com- computer aided <laughs> with the, with the advent of all this stuff where you can make it, I, I, I guess you can make it structurally sound. To to enough of a degree where it doesn't collapse in on itself, but it, even with that, it, it it has the appearance of uh, maybe a, where I, I would describe it as like maybe you have like a like a, a Frank Lloyd Wright that got uh, hit by a tornado, and right. then and then it's Frank Gehry. It, mm-hmm. It's it's just yeah, which which is uh, uh, there's a there's a building remember i sent you that picture of that tom main building at um caltech where he literally designed the building not kidding that's what he said his intent was he d- designed the building to look like something after an earthquake had happened <laughs> well no yeah i mean you're trying to uh, joke or parody this stuff but you there you yeah can't it's absurd come away it's absurdist no yeah it is it's, it's absurdist absurdist philosophy applied to architecture just like you know absurdist stuff gets applied to politics and everything else that we currently see it it all goes it's all you know cyclical you know so um uh, let, let me just let me just uh let me just do this real quick here you're listening to the afternoon commute with Chris Kennel and John Adams. We are speaking with Professor Frank Albo from the University of Winnipeg. He is a professor of architecture, and uh, we are glad to be having this uh, wonderful conversation we just got into, just kind of on a whim here. Um, you can go to his website; it's frankalbo.com, and he's written a book. Um, about the capital of Kazakhstan, uh, which is Ast- is it Astana or Astana? Uh, Astana. Astana. Okay. Uh, even the name itself is Freemasonic. Um, 
and we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute as to why that is because I know I know why it's a Freemasonic name, but um, but yeah, uh, Mr. Uh, or Professor, are, are you a doctor, Frank? Yes, I have a PhD, but it's fine. Okay. you can call me Do- Frank. Okay, well, uh, Doctor Frank here. No, I'm kidding. Totally kidding. Um. Um, fr- Frank has written a book on on the architecture within this capital city, and it literally is. Uh, if you've seen, uh, Chris and I were just talking about this. If you've seen those that uh, hidden in plain sight stuff, where they go and they talk about these um, these countries that are kind of building these uh, Washington D.C. style uh, cities now. Like um, uh, comparatively would be uh, Canberra in Australia, um, and I guess the first one kind of is uh, Brasilia in Brazil outside of Rio de Janeiro, where they built these uh, government cities basically, uh, and they're built in a symbolic Freemasonic fashion, uh, also akin to just like Washington D.C. is. Um, I'm going to uh, turn it over to uh, Frank here so he can tell us exactly uh, uh, what his book's about. Because I haven't read his book. I'm interested in reading his book now, definitely. So, um, so Frank, go ahead. Tell us about your book, please. We uh, would love to hear about it. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, it's, uh, I, I was just enjoying our uh, pre-on-air chat um, about the meaning and myths surrounding architecture, even modern architecture. Um, and in that vein... Uh, uh, Astana outshines every other building project conceived or constructed, um, perhaps since um, uh, the the third millennium, um, Akhenaten's Amarna. Uh, We can go go into that at another time. But um, I was was motivated to uh, do the first critical study and assessment of this capital city. while I was preparing this graduate course on utopian cities and paradisical architecture, um, I'd been—I wrote my PhD on the architecture of Freemasonry and had been enchanted by the notion of architecture being a vehicle of moral, moral, ethical uh, advancement, and/or as it's described in Freemasonry, as um, um, as a light of illumination. That architecture, among all disciplines known to the human mind, had the capacity to reform the soul. Hence, why um, the the very and what which was actually shocking at, um, in in my my study of Freemasonry that of all the literature that is, um, at, which there is a lot and most is uh, sensational and often uh, uh, speculative um, and and dubious, is that very little of the the treatment of the history of our, of, of Freemasonry actually looks at the importance of architecture within the fraternity and architecture is the central core of all Masonic symbolism fellowship and and um, as a guild of, of medieval craftsmen they had inherited this notion that there were certain principles derived from architecture the tools of architecture the the proportions and numbers that come from building that um, have a very profound impression on us. 
And uh, of course, cities are uh, are designed with this in mind too. Uh, not all of them uh, with this much level of, of detail or rigor. And uh, so, as I was preparing this course, I was shocked to find that there were. Uh, and I was the way I was framing this course was from uh, um, Plato's Atlantis, the first effort to build a kind of a type of paradisical city, a utopia, Atlantis, and. Um, Nazarbayev, the president of Kazakhstan's uh, Astana. And um, uh, I was shocked to find that there were all of these uh, websites promoting what to me seemed like an utterly ludicrous idea that the world capital of the Illuminati has now not is not Washington, D.C. It's Astana, the capital city of Kazakhstan. So I uh, basically um, spent four years um, and many times going to Kazakhstan to find out what was at, at heart to the architecture design um, of the city. And what you'll find is a giant glass pyramid, a, the world's largest outdoor tent, the world's largest sphere. Uh, you find the, the preeminence of geometry, which is the, the, the cornerstone of um, uh, Masonic architecture, as it were, is geometry. That's the G within the square and compasses, by the way. Uh, it's geometry. And, um, and to, to find how you had such regular and actually quite pleasing geometrical forms permeating uh, the capital. So apologies for this. But uh, this book, for one, uh, I provide the first full-scale um, and authoritative architectural history of any Central Asian city. Um, number two, I, um, I make a case for the power of myth that in uh, contemporary society, that myth is an essential element of um, what drives uh, humans, binds humans, what is at uh, the core of human identity. We're motivated by symbols and metaphors derived from myth. And then the third element of this story is that, strangely enough and unsuspectingly, is that um, the myth of this city, which is the first and the most latest planned capital, you mentioned Canberra and um, also Brasilia, which were government planned capitals built from scratch, tabula rasa, nothing there. They built a utopic city from scratch, and most of those projects have actually been abominable failures, but uh, Astana has uh, succeeded dramatically. I mean, there was the barren step. These are nomadic people that for thousands of years have been nomadic, never having a, a, a solid, stable architecture. And within a period of about 25 years, in fact, they just celebrated their 25th year, they built this literal paradise of, um, of architecture. And I wanted to take it apart because I'm not actually a great fan of modern architecture and realized that what they did was uh, quite remarkable and that at the foundation of this city was um, the oldest foundation myth of world history, um, and that is the Sumerian tale of Etana. Um, my first graduate degree was in the languages and cultures of the ancient Middle East, and um, you probably heard of the Law Code of Hammurabi or, say, the Epic of Gilgamesh, but the oldest Sumerian tale is called the Sumerian tale of Etana. Uh, sounds very closely similar to Astana, by the way, but that's uh, um, a little sidebar. And um, and found that here on the Central Asian steppes, in the last least likely place on Earth, the so-called homeland of Borat, this world headquarters of the Illuminati, is that they were reviving, building from scratch, 
an ancient uh, um, mother myth, the mother myth of um, uh, 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 early civilization is the Sumerian tale of Itana. Uh, the opening lines begin with the building of a capital city and the construction of a tower and uh, the building of the tree of life. And um, that's basically uh, what is evoked over and over again in uh, Astana. So w people were superficially saying, oh, it's Masonic, oh, it's Illuminati, and actually were barely scratching the surface of what is um, happening there. So if you just did a simple Google search right now, you'd realize that the World Expo just happened in uh, Astana. And, and the center of the World Expo is the this massive sphere. It's a huge, massive glass sphere. And all of the technology in this sphere is dedicated to the future of energy. Um, so the myth of, um, that I describe in this book is that I, uh, I argue that cities uh, have at their core a foundation myth, whether it's Rome and the so-called foundation myth of Romulus and Remus. You have a foundation myth for uh, the founding of America. It's called Manifest Destiny. You have a foundation myth for Constantinople. It's called the Gospels, Athens, the Iliad. Every great city has at its core a foundation myth. And so I went there empirically scratching beneath the surface of these beautiful architectural forms in, in Astana and found that beneath them was one of the oldest foundation myths of world history, but it's being retold in an entirely different um, way and through a Kazakh lens. And uh, the myth um, is narrated around three basic uh, elements. Uh, one is that it is um, the, the symbolism and meaning of the architecture of Astana is dedicated to uh, religious harmony or the end of religious extremism. Uh, number two, that the architecture of the, the capital of Kazakhstan is dedicated to the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons. I could uh, elaborate on that. And the third element was planetary sustainability. So uh, I wrote this book where um, I uh, unmasked these uh, superficial uh, Illuminati Masonic associations of the capital and found that it was evoking an ancient mother myth. And to make my story that much more enticing and my sincere apologies for this long monologue, and I will get to the, the, uh, the crux of the matter, is um, I have placed a secret message within this book. And the first person to decipher this secret message will win an all-expense-paid trip, uh, VIP trip, to see this capital city for yourself. And it's a seven days luxury hotel, and you would even have some spending money. And the reason I did this is because I'm trying to make uh, people uh, uh, actually explore the, the power and meaning of architecture in a much deeper way. And so for that, I need a form of allurement. And for me, I've always been a decoder of architecture. I've made an architectural career of decoding public monuments, buildings, cemeteries, uh, um, public institutions. And so I thought in this case, I would um, uh, uh, provide as a, a, a way of inviting the public into understanding how uh, um, uh, architecture is really this uh, uh, dramatically important in our lives. Um, I thought I'd place this message within the book and, and off you go. It's there hidden in plain view in this book and it's all tied within this narrative. Great. Um, very, very interesting. Now, I myself and Chris are not Freemasons. Um, we're not members of any secret societies or um, 
uh, our interest is purely from an outsider's perspective. Um, I was. That is I, 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 any way to decipher this uh, uh, this message? By the way, in, in no way d- does it require you having some an, uh, initiated knowledge. Right. I figured as much since, you know, I, I didn't think that somebody picking up your book, the average person picking up your Barnes, picking up your book at Barnes and Noble would just be coming from the local lodge. I wasn't uh, thinking that. What, um, yeah, go ahead. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I've just, I, I'm a, I didn't go to school for architecture or anything. I just kind of novice history buff type stuff. And so I'm aware that down through history, you know, you had, uh, you know, stone builders and guilds and the, you know, those type of, um, uh, the, those type of institutions pass those things down to apprentices and, you know, built churches and, and there was symbolism built, built into buildings in earlier time periods. And like we were discussing by the time you get up into the, um, uh, into the 1900s, you start, you know, start to see, uh, uh, the modern stuff start to pop up, uh, even as early as that, I guess you'd say Otto Wagner is kind of the father of that type of thinking. And my impression is I don't, you know, just uh, kind of digressing for a minute, that when when you get into these uh, schools of thought, that there's no doubt in my mind that uh, many architects today are still Freemasons. They still employ a type of symbolism in their non their non-art is just architecture ceases to be a form of art. Um, why do you think? Um, well, first of all, like, was there a master plan for this uh, for this city, or did it? You said it came about over twenty-five years. Is yeah. there like a master plan somewhere where somebody said we're going to build this, this, and this, and this, and it's going to have all of the symbolism incorporated into it over a period of time? Absolutely. The, um, the city uh, began with a master plan that was designed by the great Japanese architect Kishu Kurakawa. And Kurakawa was um, one of the great exponents of what was known as a, um, a school of Japanese architectural philosophy called metabolism. And metabolism was based on the idea that architecture should look to natural, organic, biological growth for inspiration in its design not only uh, buildings, but also uh, cities. Um, And so there were three basic ingredients to Kurokawa's design for Astana. And that was um, the notion that the old and new should be blended together. Uh, So in the case of Brasilia or Canberra, for instance, that does not uh, take place. uh, There is a, um, a complete blank slate tabula rasa and upon this tabula rasa is a whole new form of architectural style of modernism that is totally divorced from previous brazilian uh culture and tradition um uh, kurokawa 
uh, is no fan of this form of thinking. And so he believed that um, buildings and cities should should be inspired by flexibility and um, a term that he uses called symbiosis, this notion of living together that the ancient nomadic traditions of Kazakhstan, which were rooted in, like, say, for instance, adaptability, pluralism and exchange could be brought in as just an equal important element to the the new style of uh, modern architecture. And the the third most important element of his design, in addition to metabolism and symbiosis, was something he called abstract symbolism. And in this place, he believed that geometry um, and geometrical figures would express these deeper truths of uh, uh, Kazakhstan, which he mythologized, um, and rightfully so, actually, as being a cultural melting pot between East and West. Kazakhstan is a, a remarkable area in the world in the sense that it is not East and it is not West. It has never been either. It has been this confluence, like a great silk road, the silk roads, there were many, not just one, but the silk roads moved through Kazakhstan. So uh, in Kazakhstan, you have the, the basically the cultural... Uh, traditions uh, um, and phenotypes, genotypes, uh, philosophical art um, uh, and cultural values that have intertwined with this area. Uh, This is not only expressed in the great variation uh, of the the look of Kazakh people, but also their belief system, the religions of the world, whether it's Nestorian Christianity or uh, Sunni Islam, or actually they gravitated towards uh, uh, the Sufic mystical branch of Islam, and many other different faiths commingled in this area. So he wanted to make sure that this was all employed in in um, in the architecture. But he he was um, his master plan had been uh, uh, is now run by the uh, um, a city planning commission called. Uh, Astana Gen Plan, which is consisted of about 12 or so uh, master architects, and they overlook uh, the designs. And I'd actually gone to their office uh, many times. I told them exactly uh, about the nature of my project. They knew nothing about, and I, I, I know this to be sincerely true, they knew nothing about Freemasonry, the Illuminati, or anything like that. Um, but um, because I will, uh, um, I, I should mention that even though um, architects are building, they are often very shallow um, in terms of their depth of knowledge of, of history or where they're deriving their inspiration from. There's uh, um, the architect of old, which was based on the, the Vitruvian notion of the architect, was a real polymath. They were somebody that were versed in jurisprudence, astronomy, geo- geography, the stars, um, every element, a kind of like um, a liberal, they had a completely liberal arts education. Today, uh, uh, architects and since World War II, architects don't really have that level of historical cultural rigor. Um, and so there are maybe a few architects left. Uh, Kurokawa is uh, interesting in this regard. So they, they're they employing ideas, but they themselves don't even know the, the genesis of it. When I, um, I, uh, I'll, I'll give you an example of this. I launched my book at uh, uh, the offices of Norman Foster uh, in London. He built the Gherkin, the 
the addition to the British Museum in the pantheon of current modern um, contemporary architects. He's like Zeus. Okay, he is the he is one of the most celebrated living architects. And when uh, and and he's built many of the most iconic buildings in Astana: the giant glass pyramid, the Khanshatar Mall, the great uh, all-seeing eye called the Nazarbayev Center, and. Um, um, and the main architects, as I'm expressing to them where they're, they're deriving these ideas, knew nothing about it. And this goes for Freemasons. Freemasons, for the most part, have no idea what, why they repeat Hebrew words and abominate the pronunciation. They have no, they, they're, they're kind of like, you know, when uh, uh, Tom Cruise pr- pretends to be the Valkyrie, he knows nothing about early German history. He's just reciting lines that are given to him by a director, and he does them in, in such a proficient way that we actually believe being uh, 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 moved by his presentation that he knows what he's talking about, but they don't. And architects are much the same way. They're employing these things, but they're not really proficient in uh, the knowledge of it. So I was shocked to find that here I had the, where I'm expressing to the, the architects where they're deriving ideas from that they themselves knew nothing about. And this isn't me trying to be arrogant or brash. It's just the way it is. You teach uh, uh, the history of architecture is such a small element of, um, uh, a, you know, getting an architecture degree. Maybe you'll have like eight or ten classes. Maybe if you're at MIT, you'll get uh, one whole course on the history of architecture, uh, architecture but for the most part, um, very little. So what are some things that you would say would be indicators that you're looking at something that is uh, Masonic or making reference to something in the ancient past? Like uh, you were talking about this style of architecture being, uh, what, what was it, meta, meta, metabolic? Um, metabolic. Yeah. I'm sorry. Uh, it's called metabolism, but it doesn't matter. Okay, yeah. Uh, okay. My, uh, so it's 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 sort of um, I guess new in the sense that it's it it was developed by this uh, Japanese architect, and mm-hmm. at, at the same time they're incorporating in elements into the architecture that's uh, ev- evocative of some uh, a- maybe ancient wisdom or something that would. In uh, uh, what what are some examples specifically? Would. Okay, well, let, let's take the three most uh, uh, iconic um, and I put quote-unquote Masonic buildings in uh, Astana. One is called the Pyramid of Peace and Reconciliation, which is a giant glass pyramid. Every three years, world religious leaders meet at the apex of a glass pyramid in Kazakhstan to discuss world religious tolerance. I'm not making this up. This is what happens, mm-hmm. and they have an architectural building to prove it. Uh, so on the surface, you go pyramid, all, uh, certainly a uh, uh, Masonic device. Um, uh, another building that comes to mind is um, called the Nazarbayev Center. And it is literally a giant glass eye peering out, out into uh, the blue sky. Um, and it's adjacent to the pyramid. So you have a pyramid adjacent to literally an all-seeing eye. Um, and uh, the uh, the third building would be the um, the great sphere in the, the center of the World Expo. So this World Expo is dedicated to the, the future of energy, uh, rather noble thing, uh, I have to say. And they are, Kazakhstan is converting their petro wealth into uh, new forms of energy that harness the sun, the wind, 
uh, the water. Uh, so uh, for the seemingly primitive nomadic um, um, ancient nomads that um, live on the steppe that are uh, um, poked fun at by Borat are actually very, very forward thinking in, in terms of not only their choices of architecture, and I have to say um, uh, uh, far more sophisticated than the, the, the building constructions in, in D.C., um, that this is the most advanced futuristic building, not only in terms of its design, but its philosophical matrix. I was shocked shocked to find such a, a level of, of uh, depth and flexibility, order and precision in using architecture as a vehicle to announce to the world, we are here. This was basically Kazakhstan's billboard to say, ha, you thought we were uh, the homeland of Borat? No, we're here. And uh, I think they're, they're, to me, Kazakhstan is like Tom Brady, the in the sixth round, the 199th pick. Everyone going, this guy's never going to do anything. He's 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 tall, lanky, can't throw a spiral. And then six Super Bowls later, you realize, well, you should have looked more closely at uh, at them. So keep your eye out for Kazakhstan. Uh, a little sidebar: for the first time that the um, uh, peace talks had been conducted outside of Geneva, do you know what city uh, was was chosen for the Syrian peace talks? Astana. 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 Yes. Hmm. Okay, I have a question. Why is Astana not the capital of the Illuminati? <laughs> well, <laughs> um, because the, uh, you know, I look at the Illuminati through a, a very strict uh, historical lens. They were started in 1776 uh, by Adam Bishop, as I'm sure you know, and they had a very short-lived existence. Their their perpetuation has existed at the level of um, uh, the myth of um, people like um, James Robinson and Abby Burrell, which continued the the myth of the existence of the Illuminati. They they were they were quickly disbanded, but the legacy of their existence has been used and usurped in a way that you would never expect, and uh, and voila. So I um, I think that there. Don't get me wrong. Do I believe that there is a um, uh, a global elite that uh, have hold the purse strings of power? Yeah, probably so. Um, whether this. Uh, global elite is is uh, using uh, Kazakhstan to create a kind of one world institution. No, I found uh, no evidence of that. In fact, what I did find was that um, what I think is a far more compelling story, which is that um, what's at the heart of this um, on the surface um, extraordinary uh, uh, capital city is an ancient mother myth. And this binding ingredient to me is a uh, 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 much more compelling way to look at, at the capital through the lens of myth. Because myth, by the way, is often discarded as being a synonymous with fiction, um, but um, au contraire. Um, myth has been far more powerful in, in changing the course of history than history has ever been, or any idea. 
Well, speaking right. of that, we, uh, we were speaking. We were yeah. speaking. Oh, I was just going to say real quick. We were talking about that Michael Kamen book, Mystic Chords of Memory, and that is the one thing that he kind of points out in that book entirely is that, uh, is that myth is more powerful than actual real history. So, <laughs> yeah. I mean, think of it like this: I tend to forget that the the uh, the whole foundation psychology, and to have this. Uh, deference to science sure enough the their basic cardinal mathematical physical rules to the uh, outside natural environment and in order to understand them you need to know the laws of physics and mathematics however there is an interior world of the human condition the psyche and that realm science does not abide there what are, are the ruling coordinates the, the 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 king of the sciences of the intellect and the imagination is myth uh and so if you look at say for instance freud and Jung, the the, the great you know pioneers of modern psychology they're deriving their ideas from myth and symbolism derived from myth um and i introduced my bar my book by giving uh, uh an homage to the oxford inklings for instance which also employed myth in the 20th century are you are you familiar with the great literary circle the oxford inklings I'm not familiar yes with them, so. they they were i mean they're you'll you'll, you'll know their names i mean it's uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, C.S. Lewis, Owen Barfield, and um, Charles Williams. But uh, I mean, everyone knows the name of, of um, uh, uh, Lewis and, and Tolkien. But what um, is little known about their body of works is that uh, after uh, World War II and after World War I, I mean, Tolkien was on the front line, for instance, they were so horrified by the, the plight of the 20th century that they, um, being ex exceptionally erudite and, and, and smart uh, social scientists, scientists as I would describe them, mythologists, they looked at the conditions of the 20th century and identified that there were three basic traumas that were facing them in the 20th century. Why is it that the, the richest nations of the world should be embroiled in two great wars? And they had identified that there were these three uh, um, fallacies that were um, underscoring everything and that was materialism disenchantment and enemy and what they set out to do with their body of writings is that they said well how what's the only way we can combat this the only ammunition against this onslaught against the 20th century psyche of the onslaught of materialism this this penchant to look to positive empirical science as the truth which they thought was uh, uh, a joke um and uh, disenchantment. Mo most of the 20th century is full of nihilistic disenchantment. Um, is they said we need to appeal to myth, and so they wrote their stories with that in mind. Unbeknownst to the, the great readers of the Lord of the Rings or the Chronicles of Narnia, is that you are being inculcated unknowingly, and 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 the uh, the author does not make this uh, uh, his intention known, but you are unknowingly being re-enchanted, which was their effort. They thought we are going to write. Uh, uh, powerful myths use, we're going to employ high fantasy epic to re-enchant the age and why they did this is because they believed the only vehicle against changing the 20th century was the realm of the imagination and the realm of myth 
And Tolkien, for instance, probably had a huge part in converting Lewis as being, he was initially a ardent atheist to being probably one of the greatest Christian apologists since, you know, Augustine. Um, and it was this notion to him uh, that um, uh, myth was more powerful, that spoke to the most primal drives of the human condition. And what uh, I set out to do in this book is to say, well, maybe there are, what are the three greatest threats we face in the 21st century? I mean, the thesis of my book is we are facing three prominent threats in the 21st century. The threat of nuclear proliferation, religious extremism, and uh, the sustainability of the planet. And so, uh, strangely and unsuspectingly, <laughs> in the middle of the world, not east or west, this capital city is, is using this as the basis of the, the, um, the announcement of, um, uh, of architecture as a vehicle to change our view of looking at the 21st century. It's completely, I never expected this. I thought this book would take me a year to write. I would, you know, debunk these uh, uh, Illuminati fairy tales or maybe find something there. I did not find anything there. Instead, what I found something which I did not expect at all, which was that um, just in the same way that the Inklings used the 20th century to use myth to change the, the 20th century, that architecture was being used in Astana to change the 21st century. I would add this, uh, no, that the... Um the, the great exposition exposition of 1851 that comes up and we've talked about that before on mm. on past oh, calls yeah. and call. that's when people were introduced to the idea of dinosaurs and 64 million years ago and then eight years after that is when charles darwin came out with the origin of species and one of the featured things in the great exposition was like all the uh, it, uh, it, it, I think a central theme was about uh, you know the Industrial Revolution, and it was a showcasing of different manufactured goods from around the world, and so it was kind of, kind of, this. Um, I, I guess it was kind of like a maybe like a watershed event or something where to where we're entering this age of where it's which I, I uh, am of, of the position that naturalistic materialism is a is a, is definitely no doubt a religion. And so they went about and then setting up the iconography uh, during this exposition. And then, you know, so they had, they had the first kind of exposure to the public of the dinosaur mythology, which I believe is a myth. Now, see, now a lot of people would balk at that, say, well, you're absolutely crazy. Dinosaurs absolutely exist. Well, I, I would say I would I would point out that that is just evidence of how deeply entrenched this mythology becomes after many years. It's almost like it's an axiom. You cannot doubt it. You're a ridiculous, you're a moron if you doubt dinosaurs. But it's like uh, it's something, um, not to change the subject, but real quick. Oh, but quick. if you read Dick Berlinski, by the way, I mean, you're, you're, you're making a really interesting uh, uh, case. I'm just wondering if you uh, read the work of uh, David Berlinski. He's probably he's an esteemed mathematician and, 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 oh yeah, and, I'm really uh, familiar with him. Huh? Yeah, yeah, because he um, uh, it has exposed the the fallacies of of Darwinism as a secular creation myth. It's it, it's marvelous how he's uh, 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 um, and 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 he's not a you know some uh, um, expositor of, of creationism or something. People immediately think, oh, he's just some you know. Uh, um, 
uh, trying to um, he's some uh, uh, Christian theorist or something, and he's not. He's just realizing that 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 the theory of uh, of Darwin and natural selection and um, uh, random adaptation have zero basis in in, in science. But that the uh, yes, that's a a sidebar. So yeah, obviously then- you're. you're Right, and I think it ties in well with this because the great exposition, and then recently it was in Astana, and then you're you're going into now how this need to to create these mythologies, and now we have this what what has been promoted heavily, which is you know climate change and global warming, and the need to re-engineer and retool industry and everything else to. Uh, address these, um, which was which came out in the Club of Rome document. Said so we 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 look for a new enemy that would unite all the peoples of the world, and we th- we found that you know global warming and threats, of environmental disaster and stuff would fit the bill, is what they said. So we're I think we're going headlong into this, and maybe this is the another sort of uh, maybe her- a heralding event. Uh, this exposition in Astana. I've never heard of this place, man. This is this blows my mind when I look at this stuff. I I, I said I, this is unbelievable. Like you look at the architecture and stuff there. This is something definitely major. And yeah. Oh, no. I sorry for interjecting. I'm so inspired by this uh, discussion, and and I appreciate your uh, uh, you know astute and creative mind. So it's um, but I I'd, it, I sifted through about. 12,000 photographs to select the most choice pieces uh, 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 to include in this book because you could do a simple Google search and you'll see some elements of um, uh, Astana's architecture, but you won't see them from the inside and you won't, you won't uh, uh, get a, um, uh, a real close analysis of how architecture has become the cardinal ingredient to uh, um, uh, 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 narrating this world myth, and um, and we, we were we were talking earlier about uh, the invention of myth and tradition, and this was. Um, uh, are you familiar with? Uh, I hate names dropping, but uh, um, uh, is Eric Hobswam? He's a British. Mar- Marxist um, cultural theorist who uh, wrote a great work, I think it was collaborated work, uh, called Invented Tradition, in which uh, we, when we, we look at certain elements of um, what we think to be tried, tested, and true element, uh, uh, like say, um, uh, like the Scottish, like if I, if I mention Scotland, the first image that pops to mind of most people are bagpipes and tartan plaid both of which are an invention from the 19th century. Or if you say, you know, British imperialism or the royal crown, you're, you imagine all the pageantry that, sur- that, that surrounds, you know, these marriages and, and, and all of um, this pomp and circumstance that surrounds the royal family, all of which, there, there, there's nothing medieval about any of them. They were all invented in the 19th century and then perpetrated on the public that by a generation or so, we accept them as being tradition, but they are were totally invented wholesale, and uh, we presume that they have this medieval heritage. They do not. And similarly here with, uh, with uh, uh, Astana is, is, or Kazakhstan is, is creating 
an invented tradition. And it's using architecture as this element to show this uh, um, notion of collective memory and in, in, in invented tradition. It's, it's, a, it's a, a remarkable way to look at uh, um, um, culture and society to realize that these like persistent themes that we think are um, um, uh, age old. I mean, uh, uh, you know, like they they have or, you know, Japan as uh, hardworking. Uh, um, uh, I mean, yoga was invented in the 1950s. It's like all these people that are doing yoga realize, oh, yes, this comes from, you know, the ancient Vedic traditions of the Himalayas. It's like, no, dude, this started 70 years ago. Wait a minute. Are you serious? Yoga was created, what did you say, in the in 1950s, you said? I, yeah, I think Iyengar, and there were a few, um, yeah, maybe just shortly after Swami Vivekananda visited the Council of World Religions in Chicago in 1938, something like that. No, yoga doesn't have some ancient heritage as is, you know, foiled on onto uh, the public. And Absolutely it's just, not. It's just totally based on assumption. As some people just assume well, that it's some kind of but that, right. Of myth, you see. I mean, yeah. I, I coming back from L.A., I realized the myth is still around us. I mean, we glorify stars, movie stars, as if they're like the moving celestial orbs. They're not. I mean, yeah. or you know, I've never seen such a a, a, a penchant for uh, uh, superheroes being uh, projected on the big screen. Just look around. I mean, it's like every major blockbuster relates to either some superhero, some hero doing supernatural deeds, or uh, uh, some uh, graphic novel come to light on, on the big screen. This is part of our penchant for and deep, deep uh, uh, connection with myth. Um, and and as, as you're both American, I'm, I'm Canadian, you should probably read the, the, the work, The American Monomyth, where... Um, these two cultural um, historians identify what, like almost like a log line in a film, identify the American monomyth, this same myth that is perpetuated over and over and over and over again of the same character in uh, uh, just a different guy's kind of like uh, Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces, but they identify who it who it was. And funnily enough, I took a huge gamble on this when Trump came down the, the towers at um, the escalator at Trump Tower. A friend of mine who uh, we did our doctorate together at, uh, at Cambridge, he's a uh, uh, political historian. Um, and I contacted him. I said, I think Trump's going to win. He, he thought I was being ridiculous. And I actually wagered on it. I, I believe so much in this, it, this, this myth that he projected mm. of you know, every time he was under siege by um, um, the the establishment, to me, I knew this was victory. This just this all all mm. bred at <laughs> basic elements of the American monomyth. What's the American monomyth? A singular hero who emerges under the most extraordinary circumstances uh, of the onslaught of all of these forces and uh, um, and brings a culture to. Its former golden state, and so the the whole thing, make America great again. That was perfect. I mean, it was just perfect engineering at all levels. I was like, this guy is, is resonating. It, this guy is just thoroughly plugged in to the American monomyth, and so much so that I even made a, um, <laughs> you know, people like, okay, this is 
this is a joke. And, uh, and being in the academy and, and recognizing this uh, didn't make me many friends, but I did wager on it. And, um, uh, and there you have it. It was, it, was, it was myth through and through, just plugged right into the American monomyth. Yeah, and as uh, John, we were just talking about the a lot. A lot of what you're saying goes right in line with a lot of stuff that we talk about. And we were just recently going over. Uh, oh, I mean, example like Wonder Woman. It's like a re. It's a re. It's like a. It's like another American monomyth, but it's kind of based on. If you go back further in some of the early. Um, the, uh, I call it just, pro it's just propaganda. It's just, you know, where they're, they're showing you, uh, a, a female personification of America, which would be, um, Columbia or, or, or the, the goddess Columbia or, and there's also different names for that going back through history, but the, and then brought, brought, re, reincarnated in the form of Wonder Woman, and then, you know, now recently they're coming out with a movie, but then how it, um, this is also, and then the guy who, who, who came up with the woman, who, who wrote the woman, Wonder Woman cartoon was a, uh, uh, our comics was a uh, psychologist, and then his stated intent was to shape the minds of uh, American youth and their attitudes toward women. But, um, yeah, it's just, this comes up over and over again where you're looking at things and you're looking at events in the news and they, and they relate and they correspond to these stories that, that are reoccurring themes. I, you know what? I, I didn't know that about um, Wonder Woman. It doesn't uh, uh, shock me in any way. And I think it's a, it's a wor worthy area of, of further exploration. Myth is still among us. We tend, we do like at, at more hypercharged than almost ever before. Right, and then I'm not to suggest that Wonder Woman is real, you know. I mean, but I mean, I'm, I'm just using that as an example of uh, how th these are the things that move people. These are things like people are really into, in, especially in our culture, are really into fiction, really into Hollywood, really into. These and um, another thing we talk about a lot too is how these the media, the so-called the news media, and uh, Hollywood and pop culture and everything, they are coordinated. They work together. They work in synchronicity. They they, they you'll see something that will come out in the news, and then right on the heels of this so-called event will be. Um, a Hollywood depiction of this or something that very closely relates. And I think a recent example with Trump, you're, you're talking about Trump, was that um, there was a new Harry Potter series uh, film that was released right in time with uh, Trump being elected, among other things, but right after he was elected. And then if you look at the themes, I had to go watch that. I'm not interested in Harry Potter at all, but I had to go watch that particular film after I found out what the synopsis of it was. And, um, and then subsequently, after I talked about that on one of the, call, one of the podcasts, uh, I ran across some articles that talked about that very thing, how prescient that was and how uh, timely it was. And it was like, and then it's like, no, this is just another example where this happens over and over and over again, this, 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 uh, symbiotic relationship. 
as if they are one entity. They're not separate entities. Like people think of all of these, um, you know, uh, the the pop the the pop culture industry as a separate entity than uh, uh, of, of politics or anything like that. I say no, they are one uh, continuous uh, co cohesive unit to, to politics, to Hollywood, all that, and uh, and 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 what you're saying here goes right in line with that. Well, um, I, I guess we're speaking the same lingo, and we didn't. Um, uh, you know, I've I've often been an architectural Ishmael or a, a, um, um, a, a lone wolf in in and looking at history in a in a unique way. So it's uh, gl- glad to hear there are kindred spirits out there. Oh yeah, it's like architecture is another big one, and another. I don't know if John is there. I think he had to tend to his baby. Uh, I, I'm here. I'm oh, here. here. I'm listening to you guys. Okay. Um, yes. So what we, we were taught. So this is so cooking shows even, right, John? Like these these um, element it's tied yes. into the CIA, tied into these CIA's big in 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 America anyway for culture creation. Matter of fact, I think that. I, I myself have come to the conclusion, I think John would agree, that the CIA, one of their main functions is as culture creators' involvement yes. in the creation of television shows, cooking shows, uh, something, yeah, you um, think that's, that's art, absurd. But art. No. Art. Art and architecture, yeah, like we were, expressionism, like we were talking about. what we were talking about earlier and all that, yeah. Yeah, that, that, came, that came out in documents. There's a whole book written about it called The Cultural Cold War. It was written by a mainstream british journalist it's not in any way a conspiracy book or anything like that um i personally think she kind of whitewashes it because she had to put out a mainstream book and um doesn't tell the whole story but yes definitely um anything that could be a cultural thing i I think i think one of the things that we're kind of trying to get across and that you're doing a great job of, of pointing out uh, separately is that a, a lot of things that get made a big deal out of uh, are kind of things that people see on the news and whether this this bill gets passed or whether this person gets into office and that type of stuff. But not a lot of people look at cultural changes actually is the driver of change, like culture being the driver of change. So um, all of the elements that people uh, recognize it as culture, whether it would be music, art, architecture, um, any one of those things, uh, uh, literature, uh, those those uh, particular things can help to dictate. It's, it's like what I like to call cu- like um, like s- cultural wallpaper, because they are the they're the static background that provides the movement for people in in a in a particular way, and you'll see threads of things in different time periods. Like you can just go back into the past and look. That people are writing songs, they're writing books, 
and and things and music you know music and art is is all kind of lining up it's and i don't believe it to be synchronistic i believe it to kind of uh have a um a master plan to provide the background noise for an age and for moving people through a wave of time you see and with that they have to be on the same page they have to be on the same wavelength so that you, you people could say well you're that makes you a conspiracy theorist and it's like well if you want more i mean there's just abundant evidence of that as case like i mean one example would be all the tie-ins of royalty to the uh american royalty which is the celebrity the celebrity class mm -hmm. and and it's just you can't it's undeniable after you look at just numerous abundant examples of that but uh you're you're saying Trump here is another instance of this uh, of this reoccurring theme that appears in in mythology. Well, and, is... and well, each okay. So let me just break that down. Uh, I think it's 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 worthy of further exposition. Um, Joseph Campbell was an American mythographer who wrote a popular work based on uh, earlier work by Otto Rank, but it, uh, it's well known. It's probably every bookstore in the world still uh, has reprints of it. It's called The Hero of a Thousand Faces. And in it, he looks at the heroes, tales, mythological uh, uh, figures and protagonists and recognizes that beneath uh, the very different shades and the thousand different faces of these heroes or religious figures is the same architectural blueprint and this architectural blueprint is a figure who goes through very discrete stages they are born and know their father not they are cast in a reed basket they go on a quest they have a helper and and it's based on this tripartite model of um uh leaving the community being in this liminal state and then going back to uh their community but enhanced with this knowledge whether it's the epic of gilgamesh or or uh, Luke Skywalker and Star Wars, Moses. each of have the same cardinal blueprint. But there are some myths that uh, uh, generate an even higher fabric of truth. They would be considered a monomyth, a myth like, say, um, the story of the Great Flood. So we know the story of the Great Flood from Noah, Utnapishtim, um, um, uh, Nana Bozu, um, Many different uh, figures. I think there's even a, a Hindu uh, um, uh, character who builds an ark on the commandments of uh, of God. So there are 88 different flood counts. There's many different accounts of the fall of man, for instance. Um, uh, so these are classified as as greater. Like I, you know, in terms of the branches of a tree, then you get to the trunk of a tree. This is m mostly known as the monomyth. So um, uh, the uh, uh, I, I think there there are two parts to this book, but uh, it's by Jewett and and Shelton. It's called the American Monomyth, and in this work, the authors identified this emergence of this particularly not British, not uh, uh, Eurasian, not Kazakh, but a American version of the monomyth, at which they describe as a hero who restores a community back to its paradisical state. But in order to do this, he uh, um, they have to fl uh, uh, flight fight with um, uh, uh, this. They have to um, 
show under the most extraordinary odds victory over perceived evil. So that is the textbook that that is the 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 template for the American monomyth. And each time I saw, you know, the mainstream media jumping on Trump or another billionaire or another comedian and everybody thought there is no chance that he could win. I thought this. Are you kidding? This is at its core the revivification at the at the most heightened political scale of the American monomyth. Um, so um, anyway, so it's this kind of. It's a persistent primordial meta narrative, and it persists everywhere in American nationalism, American patriotism, American movies, American art, um, and um, other cultures have their own mono myths. Uh, um, but uh, but I thought this was such a um, uh, such a work of supreme genius that uh, they had. Uh, uh, looked at the whole of, of American culture and were able to identify an underlining archetypical narrative. Now, I got a quick question. I'm moving the subject back to architecture for a second here. Um, okay, so, and and I'll, I'll bring it back to um, Astana here. Sure. Okay, so. I'm just now. I I know what a I know what a pyramid means. I know what you know. A, a phoenix firebird indicates symbolically. I know that the <clears throat> spire with the golden sphere in the middle of it, and the you know rising sun and all that type of stuff. I'm I, I can see the two Jackman Boaz twin golden towers here, and um. You know, uh, Chris and I are both pretty familiar with all the Freemasonic symbolism and all that type of stuff. Um, uh, how how do you look, j- just for the average listener here, sure. how do you look at a building, because you're an expert, I'm not an expert, Chris is an expert, how do you look at a building and are, and are able to read symbolism in the makeup of a building? That, that's a uh, mighty uh, good question. It's, you know, um, my profession is somewhat similar to um, uh, any other um, specialized profession in the sense that uh, an, a heart surgeon understands all the deeper mechanics of what's happening with blood flow uh, than any uh, a, a novice might. Uh, so when I'm when I look at at, at buildings and I see the employment of certain uh, repeated motifs that have a genus, they actually came from a, uh, a stock idea, uh, you, you can identify them go, oh, I see. Okay. So for instance, you, you, you mentioned the, the, the golden towers at, um, uh, uh, at Astana representing the, the twin pillars that stood at the forecourt of Solomon's temple, um, uh, venerated by Freemasons as Yakin and Boaz. Uh, correct. Now, this this form has been employed in countless different ways. Frank Lloyd Wright, unknowingly, he's not a Mason, never been a Mason, uses the very same basic uh, um, elements of Yakin and Boaz in his uh, Larkin administration building in, in Buffalo. In, in fact, included on the top of, of them, he had two uh, spheres which are dominantly, which are used in the Masonic Lodge at the at the apex, at the capital of the, the, 
the the pillars are um, uh, spheres of the world. And okay, lawyer- wait, wait, Frank, can I ask you a quick question? Just interjecting there. Yep. Don't want to mess up your rhythm, but I do have a question here. Sure, sure. Okay. Sure. So, so if if the if the craft itself whatever it may be, and I know I'm not speaking of the Masonic craft as they use that word, but um, I'm just speaking as whatever your craft may be. So architecture, let's say architecture itself, is, you know, it started, especially with the particular styles, you know, of just since, you know, America came into being, which America is a free Masonic country, it was started by Freemasons. It was built on the idea of Freemasonry. Um if people who incorporated Freemasonry and Freemasonic symbolism into architecture um, just as a, you know, just as a study, just as a, um, an art form, somebody could be a free, somebody could not be a Freemason practicing architecture and not even be aware that they are actually building a building in the style of a Freemasonic building, but not have any knowledge of it whatsoever. That is correct. Well, I mean, okay. Freemason, just in the same way that um, somebody might employ classical motifs, knowing zero about the, the Pantheon. They've seen that, that style before. They've seen that, you know, uh, uh, freestanding columns on top of an entablature and a pediment. And they said, oh, I really like that. I mean, a triangular form with uh, um, uh, a straight bar across with these uh, um, uh, columns beneath they, they, or, or a Gothic style. So, so it's, it's, I make a, a, a case that uh, Freemasonry can almost be reviewed as a style in the same way that modernism is given a typology or uh, deconstructionism or brutalist or uh, Art Deco, um, that that um, Freemasonry has such a vocabulary of architecture that it could be viewed as a type of style. And the people that employ the, that style might not be, in fact, almost always do not have any deeper knowledge of the heritage of that style. The, I think maybe in, in uh, my near 17 years of looking at uh, um, architecture and buildings uh, and history, the I could think of only two or three architects that knowingly and at a deeply sophisticated level used Freemasonry as a, um, a motivating uh, uh, inspiration to their design. And one of those buildings being the the Manitoba uh, government building. Yeah, which was built by a, um, uh, a Simon. A, yeah, Frank Worthington Simon, the uh, Cork Cathedral in Ireland, built by uh, William Burgess and um, uh, Charles Robert Cockrell, another British architect. Almost all British art. Yeah, actually, all British architects um, have a, um, a a very deep understanding of the. Uh, because if the the ritualism used in, in in Freemasonry takes takes you on an initiatic journey where you're introduced to the thousands of years of, of architectural knowledge, and I, I I've been I I have no proficiency in architecture whatsoever. I I draw stick men. That that's about it. But where um um. I built my profession is around looking at buildings, monuments, uh, uh, cities, at 
and read them in the very same way that we would we would read a book. Uh, and once you know the language of what you're reading, you can actually glean so much from architecture, far more than uh, uh, historical writings, because um, architecture often is uh, lasts longer, and the the reminders of of those buildings stay with us, um, and they they impinge upon our daily lives. Let, let me ask a quick question. I know Chris probably wants to interject here, but I just on that note. Have you ever looked at, and I'm and um, I'm not saying specifically like looking at it, um, you know, getting into, you know, rabbit trail conspiracy theories or anything like that, but have you ever looked at the events of 9/11 in a Freemasonic fashion? You see, you have the two pillars and they collapse, and out of the two pillars comes the one pillar. Mm-hmm. And then the building that just so happens to be built next to the One World Tower now is a Jacob's Ladder stairway to heaven. Oh, yeah. Um, I have no. Uh, I have looked at that. It has a, okay, min- yeah. a minaret on the top, which is uh, a <laughs> yeah, that, that too. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, built right next, built right next to. They built this new building next to the One World Tower, and it's it's uh, you know seven steps to heaven, you know, like Jacob's Ladder. Okay. And um, I, it was I, just, it, I would be it was just, in, go, go I'm, ahead. I'm sorry, I was just saying, uh, you know, you have this symbolic, you know, I mean, go read, you go read Morals and Dogma and all, all over the place, Albert Pike's talking about, you know, out of two becomes one, you have the hermaphroditic concept of uh, moving into a different age, Um uh, that's another thing that I noticed. I, I don't think a lot of people would pick up on. Um, maybe you yourself wouldn't uh, interpret it this way, but I, I kind of look at, at that when I see the um, the Astana uh, spire with the golden uh, sphere in the middle of it. It looks to me like it looks like a, hermaphrod- a hermaphroditic symbol as well. So. Um, revealing in a new age where out of out of something you get the the one thing that that is a very you know higher level freemasonic concept of um order out of chaos many out of one that you know e pluribus unum that type of stuff well the uh uh i i think for the most part pike gets uh, uh, far more uh, credit for um, uh, I- ideas that, uh, in his rambling tome, um, I-, I find uh, rather chaotic, <laughs> uh, more like uh, ab kale than um, order. But um, in-, in terms of what you were saying earlier about the destruction of the towers and the creation of, of the one tower, and that there would be an evocation of Jacob's ladder. I don't. I. I. I wouldn't balk at that at all. I mean, these are these are very powerful motifs that are at the, the core of the, the human psyche. Uh, the Swiss psychologist um, uh, Carl Gustav Jung believed in um, the the notion that there was a collective unconscious in which we all there was the unconscious mind, which was individual. But there was a collective unconscious, and and among this collective unconscious, of which we all share at our root, 
the language of the collective unconscious was myth and symbols. And so some of the oldest myths and tales are told in, through allegories and metaphors. And just I'm going to sidebar to Freemasonry for a second, which is described at the textbook def definition of Freemasonry is a peculiar system of morality veiled in allegory and illustrated by symbols. That might as well have been written by Jung in his description of the collective unconscious. So we all share this deep well. The language that binds us is symbols. So it does not shock me in any way that uh, uh, an architect unknowingly could be gleaning from and drinking from the well of the collecti collective unconscious soup and drawing this metaphor of Jacob's Ladder, which is so preeminent, not only in biblical thought and post-biblical thought, um, but in um, the um, uh, uh, ascension literature of, um, it's called the Hecholot literature in uh, Judaism. It's a mystical branch of Judaism of which the um, uh, Kabbalah and, and the, uh, the, the, the Sephiroth of the Tree of Life emerge from this earlier Merkaba literature, which uses the metaphor of Jacob's Ladder. Jacob's Ladder is, is probably, I mean, if we were to identify 10 ruling monomyth symbols, Jacob's Ladder has got to be uh, high up there um, and, and used often in, in Gothic cathedrals as well. So I wouldn't sh shock me at all that your analysis is, uh, is correct. And it's not, and, and it's not, um, that is not being a conspiracy theorist whatsoever, that somebody is drawing from this deep well of, of symbolism of which we all uh, partake. That's not shocking. Yeah, another thing too. We're on that subject. We're talking about nine eleven. Uh, what is that? Minoru Yamasaki that designed the World Trade Center complex uh, says too that he was heavily uh, influenced by uh, uh, Islamic architecture, and that the the courtyard that was uh, was I guess it was modeled after like Mecca. So it had like all these different influences, and it had had um, the uh, uh, I don't know. You have to I have to go re-examine some of that stuff. But um, yeah, there's a lot. You know what? You should send, you should email Frank that article that we dug up on that where where he's talking about that 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 the World Trade Center complex was modeled on Mecca. It's it's bizarre. Most uh, people don't know that. But. I, th I think this well, is the one here. There was something in Slate. I'll, I'll send you that one. Well, I mean, this is this is the uh, the location of uh, of Muhammad's flight to heaven. So, um, which is another variation of the theme of the ascent, uh, which typically is conducted on the back of an eagle, but the eagle um, uh, slowly uh, moves away. It sometimes comes back in, but it's um, the eagle is usually the the or the mythological phoenix bird is usually the the carrier. Of the, the the hero up to heaven, um, Jacob's ladder. The 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 ladder can easily be uh, transposed with the the symbol of the eagle. Right, just like just like on the dollar bill, the mm -hmm. eagle's supposed supposed to be a phoenix bird on the dollar bill too. Well, the eagle. Here here's a here's a curious thought. Why is it 
that if you look at all the major royal heads of Europe and all the great civilizations of the world, going back all the way to um, 4th millennium BCE, Susa has used an eagle as an indication of the rise of that particular civilization. You find the eagle in Mexico, you find the eagle in Germany, it's in Persia, it's in Rome, it's in America. Uh, I mean, it is it is monolithic in term. It, it, it's found everywhere. Well, even even one of the, even one of the one of the Jewish tribes had an eagle for their flag, right? And, mm. and one of the apostles, uh, John, for instance, is identified with, with the eagle. Um, uh, now, I think um, the the case that I make, uh, which I describe in my book, is that the the um, the original impetus for this notion of the eagle comes from the Sumerian tale of Atana. And in the Sumerian tale of Atana, it opens with the following lines. Uh, they built a city. This is the uh, next to the, the, the recipe for beer, uh, which is the oldest scriptural writing that we have in, in human existence, the Sumerian uh, um, uh, ingredients for making beer. <laughs> it would be the Sumerian tale of Itana. And in this tale, the opening lines begin, they built a city. The gods laid its foundation. They built a city, let Itana, Astana, be the architect. They built a tower, a shrine, and in the shade of that shrine, a poplar was growing, a poplar tree, and in its crown, an eagle settled. And as you carry on through the tablets of the Sumerian tale, uh, you find out about the... Um, uh, a malevolent stake that tries eating the egg of this eagle and is killed by this uh, um, valiant hero. And as a result of this great triumph, the eagle lifts the hero up to heaven. So the, the eagle has been synonymous with ascent and civilizational rule around the world. Uh, literally, from east to west, you find the the um, this revivification of the eagle, whether it's uh, um, uh, the the falcon of Horus, or it's um, uh, the the eagle at Teotihuacan. It's the same uh, um, basic myth, which Jung, uh, early psychologist, would argue, it is evidence that these figures who could not possibly have communicated culturally are drawing the symbolic references from a deep collective subconscious well of which we all participate. Oh, by the way, John, you know where the piñata comes from, they say? Oh, what's that? Uh, the Aztecs. Uh, interesting. Yes, yeah, we, we'll, we'll, have, we'll, have to, uh, we'll have to discuss the origins of a piñata on, on, on another show with a piñata expert. Well, I, yeah, I, sure. I, no, I thought I would drop that in there because, like, what what Frank's saying about the uh, uh, civilizational rule, how um, we, me and myself and John were just we were talking about pinata. It came up conversation the pinata, and we say, okay, so um, like you were saying, your daughter didn't get the whole concept, and 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 the idea, and, and we're, we're, we're sort of uh, surmising about that, and then thinking, well. Uh, well, what does that do? It sort of fosters competition. It teaches children early on. Oh, go after the candy and grab all you can and keep it for yourself. And, and I was wondering, like, where did that come from? Did that Now, it's attributed to Mexico. But then, um, 
you're talking about how you know these mythologies and are so it's sort of this overarching theme we have going here is where our our this thing called civilization is is in is is contingent on mythology this is where uh, i think a lot of people don't really understand the extent with myth- mythology uh, plays plays a you know prominent role within so-called modern civilization uh, but you'll have these cultural practices that are, are seem mundane or pedestrian or whatever that you don't even really take into consideration that maybe these things are to engender a certain attitude within people or certain uh, modes of thinking that uh, will lend themselves to certain behaviors or be prone to certain behaviors. And that's, and, and it's, so, um, it, I don't think this is off topic. I think this is right in line with the topic is that, um, I, you know, because everything kind of comes into play with all of this is that to, to make, what does it take to make a civilized person, I guess, to sum it up, to make a long story short. Well, myth has been a, um, a critical element of it's been a civilizing influence for a very long time because within uh, uh, myth, it's not just a collection of stories and um, uh, abominated facts. What you what you get from myth and epic are um, uh, ways of of telling uh, a culture how how to survive and also um, uh, ideas that become a kind of uh, not kind of but become binding glue. Myth tell us about moral lessons, justice, uh, what's right, what's wrong. And so we, we, we tend to give, we, myth gets a very bad rap in the sense that it is seen all, only in the 20th century, by the way, um, the, the, the notion of, of myth as it was studied earlier did not have that uh, uh, pejorative association. The um, uh, myth had a much more powerful uh, ingredient to society. Greek tragedies were, were an essential part of um, uh, bringing the Athenian populace to get, together. You were given a day's pay to go and attend a Greek tragedy, and often based on mythological stories, because they knew that in these stories, in these poetic accounts of, of mythic heroes and tales of myth, that um, moral lessons can be imbued. Um, uh, Socrates, that the, the cornerstone of the Republic is based on inventing myth. And funnily enough, uh, uh, on, on that uh, uh, turn, what was for me a great uh, source of inspiration in using uh, myth as a lens to uh, decode Astana was um, what had happened 400 years earlier with uh, Johann Valentin Andrea, which most people might not, uh, uh, doesn't ring off the tongue very easily, but he was the author of the Rosicrucian Manifestos. The Rosicrucians were a, um, a, a, a brotherhood that were the precursors to Freemasonry in early 17th century Europe that were invented. There was no Rosicrucian brotherhood. They, the, the early three Rosicrucian Manifestos were invented wholesale from scratch, which, uh, uh, presented this myth that there was a universal brotherhood surrounding Europe as uh, right now. And you have to understand Europe at that time was going through 
a great 30-year war where there was a backlash between Protestants and the Roman Catholic Empire. And within this environment, uh, a bunch of heterodox intellectuals uh, with um, uh, uh, you know, Christian leanings decided to invent the notion of the existence of a secret brotherhood that were operating in Europe that were healing the sick, that were bringing together philosophy, art, and science, and they were among us right now. And uh, this myth caught on so powerfully that other people living in in Prussia or um, uh, Great Britain or the Netherlands wanted to be a member of this fictitious Rosicrucian Brotherhood. And so about 100 years later, a real Rosicrucian uh, sacked out of Freemasonry emerged, and even today you would see that there are many branches of a Rosicrucian Brotherhood. What most Rosicrucians don't realize is that the initial impetus of the Brotherhood was invented wholesale. But they knew that in order to change the face of Europe in this contentious battle is that they cloaked this utopia in a myth and then wrapped it in a mystery. And by doing this, they, they, they pulled off probably the most effective publicity stunt of all time. Because right, whether it was 1613 when the first Rosicrucian Manifesto came out, right up to this very day, Rosicrucians are always very, very closely associated with, with Freemasons and people don't realize that they were invented from scratch as a myth. But then the myth actually imposes and becomes a real thing. Now there's a real brotherhood, and now this brotherhood thinks that they are healing the sick and using of alchemy and mystical arts to bring together philosophy, science, and religion. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, uh, Albert Pike has one of the degree of Freemasonry knight or something as well. So, uh, can you hear me? Getting some noise on the line. Hello. Can you hear me? I, I can hear you. Okay. Uh, um, I was saying that in the Scot in the Scottish right. No, I can't. Uh, I, I can't hear anything. Oh, you, you, uh, see. I can I hear everybody fine. I, I don't hear you guys. I can hear you. I, Let's see. No, I, I I don't think I can hear you very well. Uh, can you hear? Can you I hear can now? Hear. I can hear John. Okay. Just I all can hear sense. you. I can okay, hear yeah. Frank. Okay, okay cool. Now? All right. I was I was saying that in the Scottish right, there's even a degree that is a Rosicrucian knight or something like that. So, yeah, sure, it's then. definitely. What's that? Uh, pure invention, or that the 33 degrees of Freemasonry is the highest degree that we, which you obtain. Another fiction. There are about a thousand degrees of Freemasonry, maybe 1,100 sure. degrees. Sure. Um, I, I, and, I used to work. I used to work with some guys who were who were Freemasons, and I would joke around with them about how much I knew about Freemasonry, and they always wanted me to become one. And I said, "Well, you know, I'm not into joining groups or anything like that." Um, but I would say, yeah, you know, when you get up to the thirty-third degree, you'll 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 know, and they'll be. And I, I swear to God, this is a true story. They said, "There's not thirty-three degrees. There's only thirty-two degrees." 
So <laughs> actually, that is true. The thirty third is is an honorary title. Yes, but they, I'm sure at their level because they didn't believe that there was um, anything probably much higher than you know going and eating spaghetti <laughs> and having a couple of beers on a Wednesday night or something. Gotcha. Yeah, but but the but. Um, yeah, you're yeah you're making um you're making some interesting uh, statements about Rosicrucians and um uh they, they, they continued to become an enduring subject of fascination and intrigue, and the fact remains that they were invented from scratch as a way to ameliorate the plight of 17th century Europe, which was caught in the crossfire of the Catholic Reformation and the Protestant Reformation, and out of this milieu, a, uh, a bunch of intellectuals thought, this is how we are going to solve this. We're going to invent the existence of a brotherhood that does not exist. And strangely enough, tons of people wanted to become initiated in a fictitious order. This is the power of myth. So you're saying it was a it was a hoax? Well, I've was, never heard that before. It makes total sense, though. I've I've heard that before. I've I've read that in in other books that um that there's no way to actually prove that the that the um that the Rosicrucian the Rosicrucian uh, papers what 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 are they called again? Um, manifesto. The manifesto, yeah, duh. the the Rosicrucian manifesto. There's no way to actually prove that they're real. There's so. No, they're they're real. I mean, they they. No, but but that you you know what I mean that the, that there was a real order putting out this manifesto, like you're saying. Yeah, the, there's. No, I mean the 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 third manifesto called the Fama Fraternitatis, or the the um, uh, is the story of Christian Rosenkreuz, Christ- the founder of of the the institution, and um, and it describes his miraculous birth and all of these. Yeah. Um, yeah, uh, no, no. There's no Christian Rosenkreuz. There's no. Uh, um, um, there was no brotherhood. But what they did was actually hugely effective because people of huge intellectual muscle and weight and gravitas adopted the credo of the Rosicrucian Brotherhood. What was the credo? The credo was this: that we need to live in a civil society in which philosophy, science, and religion are entwined and harmonious. It was it was their way, just in the same way that the Inklings do the same thing. The Inklings invent, they mm-hmm. use uh, the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. Well, a, a colleague of mine, um, uh, if you're any fan of the Chronicles of Narnia, you should, you should read Planet Narnia by Michael Ward because he showed that the seven books of Narnia, there are actually seven discrete books. It's not just the line, the witch, and the wardrobe. It begins with Prince Caspian, ends with Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It consists of seven books, and each one of those books is actually a deep uh, um, uh, philosophical discussion of the seven planets of medieval cosmology. C.S. Lewis was a great uh, um, believer that something was lost in the medieval world because it was a time in which we closely associated ourselves socially with the cosmos, and that the stars actually had an influence and effect on us, and he believed there was something rather romantically uh, uh, important about that, that we are, weren't divorced from, 
um, our surroundings, but we're closely entwined with those surroundings. So each one of those books is a commentary on the sun, the moon, Jupiter, Saturn, and so on. And once you know that you've seen it as he's properly decoded, you realize that when you're reading the story or you're reading the story of Frodo and, uh, um, um, and his quest, unknowingly you're being inculcated in Roman Catholic theology. Tolkien was a huge Catholic. I mean, I mean, staunch Roman Catholic. So you would never, ever know that. But once you see beneath the allegorical lesson, that's what they're trying to get across. And for them, that was a way to solve issues in civil society of their time. The Rosicrucians did it effectively in the 17th century. The Inklings do it effectively in the 20th century. Maybe, and this is my argument in my book, is that is there a new mother myth right now being written for the 21st century rooted in these three themes that uh, well that, that's you know in, interestingly enough the inklings you, you brought up the inklings again i was going to say this the first time um from my recollection so owen barfield was like he was like um what did he do he wrote rudolf steiner's books yeah, right he yeah he was uh uh he, he he was motivated by the uh, ideas of anthroposophy, but he was far uh, uh, I'm, I'm in his mind uh, far superior in every way. Uh, I mean, I tell students if there's one book you have to read, it's Poetic Diction by Owen Barfield. It he gives you such a close way of understanding the origins of words. For him, he believed that words were or the evolution of words if you actually look at the evolution of words you're you're getting a detailed study of the evolution of the human soul because the way we would use the word breath today had a completely different meaning than when they used the word phenoma in greek in describing the first uh, um uh, the prologue of john uh, uh the breath of god or mm-hmm. whatnot and so yes. if you actually see the origins of these words and study them carefully, you, you get a deep insight in, into uh, the, the human soul. He's basically a philosopher of consciousness at a time when there, uh, um, uh, there was no such study. Uh, he, he might be the greatest mind of those three. I mean, Tolkien and Lewis are, are most well-known because of their um, uh, novel, their, their uh, epic fantasy but this guy was um, no in a completely different league. But they're all they're all bent well, on the same program: how to change how to mm. change the traumas of the 20th century, which were which they identify as being rooted in materialism. Materialism was the great Satan of the 20th century, and it was destroying the ability to open our mind. And for them, the greatest vehicle of the mind is our imagination. Funnily enough. Einstein makes the same claim. What about theosophy playing a role? Um, I would say in the current state of things, I'd say that people, for the most part, like if you if you're looking at something like um, like kind of a mother myth that's kind of taken a hold of people uh, in the present day, and um, it's it's an it's an unfortunate thing because if you actually look into the history of it, it's actually completely and totally made up. But um, I'd like to hear your opinion on this. Um, I don't believe in aliens um, from other planets. Um, it literally comes out of theosophy, 
uh, speaking of Rudolf Steiner. So um, this is something that people like you're like you're saying, you, you know, about a century before. What's that? Um, Swedenborg. Yes. Yeah, Swedenborg. Yeah, same. Yeah, you know, I would actually, you know, Swedenborg is obviously not a theosophist, but is basically, for lack of a better word, same stuff. Um, uh, so what you have today is um, ancient aliens. People are getting in this stuff. People are really believing. They're believing in pan uh, spermia. Mm-hmm. Um, they're believing in. Um, that you know when the when the Aztecs built the pyramids, they were really building them because of aliens. When the Egyptians built the pyramid, they were really building them because of aliens. You got Zachariah Sitchin's ridiculous books, kind of kicking this stuff off, along with Eric von Daniken. Um, totally. Uh, Eric von Daniken actually believed what he's saying. Zachariah Sitchin, knowing is a knowing knowingly is uh, a charlatan. Because there are the <laughs> Mary, no, but that's different. I, I von Denigan believes his uh, uh, his his own ludubrium, which is the word that uh, 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 Valentin Andrea used to describe the Rosicrucian manifestos that he wrote. Uh, but um, Sitchin should know better. He is knowingly pulling the wool over our eyes because there are no Sumerian. T- I mean, all, there are Sumerian texts, and they're they're known by their accession numbers. So you could look them up, and there's never ever any reference to the Anunnaki, which he spells wrong, by the way, and and uh, the, the countless references that he makes from the Enuma Elish are so wrong that for him to cite them, he knows full well. And I don't believe that he uh, um, uh, was proficient in Sumerian. I having read Sumerian. I know that he couldn't be. Um, no, he, but he, he literally does this on purpose. I'm not kidding. I, I remember reading these book, his his uh, two first two books, and he would. Li- I'm not, just go go read the book if you don't believe me. He'll say, you know, the word Shem, the 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 Sumerian Hebrew word Shem. He said, yeah, that means a uh, place of the rocket ships. <laughs> Ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, was he? Not he kidding. was a member of the uh, what Ashmolean Ash- society, society out of Oxford, yeah. and yeah, he knows exactly what he's doing. I mean, that's yeah, just this preposterous nonsense coming out of that guy. But yeah, that is very popular now, and uh, it. I think is he this too popular? Hasn't he been unmasked as a total fraud? Well, I, yeah, Sitchin. I'm not saying like Sitchin is, a, a po- but I'm saying this idea of the ancient alien, and so they are now, I think, trying to mainstream it and popularize it, like these films, like uh, uh, these new alien series of films, and also, of course, you got your stock science fiction and stuff that's come, you know, that that people are. It's like a it, it's like a new type of religion with the, the Star Wars fanatics and stuff, and they're building. Uh, yeah, Jay Dyer sent me a. A link to the new Star Wars uh, world that Disney is building, and and is, so if we're trying to hunt around for what what what, what might be some of the manifestations of uh, sort of these new mythologies, the might be looking into some of this stuff, and I, I think this ties into the ancient alien idea, which all which also being uh, uh, pimped by the naturalistic materialist Dawkins and. Krauss and 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 those uh, so-called heavy intellectual hitters. Uh, I have to laugh when I say that. Four horsemen of the the atheist apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, 
but yeah 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 so the, yeah they've all stated in their own words how um you know giving deference to the idea that maybe we came from aliens or alien seeded life dawkins has said uh, Ooh, and all of them have said stated that oh oh be, be, because of the 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 lack of uh fossil record evidence i i that's the first i heard that they'd uh made any claim well, I think there's a big, major problem with abiogenesis. Like they, 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 but and they have to, I guess, acknowledge that or, or, or give some kind of. But I, I don't know if that is really the case or what's bringing pressure to bear. Because I, I, I don't think uh, since I, I think that the whole evolution theory is so bereft of evidence, it doesn't really, it's not contingent on anything being demonstrable in a lab or anything. So I don't think that the abiogenesis thing is really that big of an issue. I think they, they. That is their that is that is their job that to to kind of do, to to go from because I think it's I, I think we're coming to the end of the era of uh, of, of Darwinism being vi a viable philosophy anymore. I think that it's, it's it's transitioning out of that, and I think maybe into these ideas, this ancient alien ideas, and this uh, panspermia idea maybe, and then going and then um, at the same time. We have all these science fiction fanatics, and this is all ties together. I, that's what I'm seeing as in the modern day, uh, the culture that that is, uh, uh, you know, exhibiting itself in all these different, uh, uh, you know, maybe me post. What, 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 I'm I'm struggling for well, a term. Well, for it, well, but, let yeah. me let me just let me just say this to to Frank here. You see, and, and I'm being, I'm being sarcastic when I say this, so don't get me wrong, okay, Frank? Okay. You see, Frank, when I look at um, Anasta there, I see that golden sphere, and it's in the middle of the spire, mm -hmm. and that's Planet X coming back. <laughs> <laughs> For sure, of course. What else could it be? <laughs> you see, that's you know that's uh, Nabooru, and um, and you know the. Um, all of the other symbolism, you know, the big, uh, the, the big disc-shaped building there um, on the on the side. I, I don't have the picture up anymore, but it's a big disc-shaped building. I know that that's a spaceship. Yeah, well, yeah. It does invoke that, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. I think. No, I no actually, it, just type into Google right now the Astana Circus, A S T A N A Circus. And you will see a giant UFO. It is exactly what it is. It's not, you don't need any interpretation whatsoever. They built a giant aluminum UFO to house their uh, um, annual circuses. Oh, wow. Google it right There it is. It's not, it's not speculation. It is a giant UFO. Oh, holy crap. Yeah. And by the way, uh, Kazakhstan has a very close association with a, um, the stars because the first time Yuri Gagarin, the first man to uh, uh, enter into space, left from the Baikonur space station, which is the full, the, the consistently the fully uh, um, fully operational space station on Earth since 1950s. It's in Kazakhstan. The earliest nomads in world history are in Central Asia, and the first people to leave outer space are from Central Asia. Uh, and what's curious about the Baikonur space station in Kazakhstan is that it is built adjacent to the site of a great Kazakh hero 
their kind of Oedipus, as it were, or their Romulus, uh, their George Washington named Coriat Atta, who went on a kind of Christian Rosenkreutz quest to find the umbilical cord of Mother Earth, and this took him to the east, the west, and he found these different traditions, and in the end, he um, uh, died on the banks of of the Sariarka River, adjacent to where um, uh, the current Baikonur space station is, and he um, sings this soulful melody, having invented this musical instrument, this Kazakh musical instrument, and he sings this song about... um, having actually found the center, the axis mundi of Mother Earth. And funnily enough, it's like adjacent to where his um, uh, memorial monument is, where he's presumed to have died, is where they built the Baikonur. And uh, uh, on that front, it's uh, uh, so here's where you find deep historical memory, invented tradition, myth, all being interwoven together to form uh, a seamless tale. Uh, to me, I just like to, to document it, present the evidence, and, and, and allow my readers to uh, uh, be as fully informed as possible. You know, I opened my book um, with three images uh, recently discovered in uh, Kazakhstan. The first is uh, the recent um, archaeological discovery of a giant step pyramid. Yes, a giant step pyramid from about the 8th century BCE was discovered in Kazakhstan. The second thing I show is the um, what's called the Devil Pentagram, the world's largest. The world's sorry, I'm uh, having to hush my uh, my daughter and, and uh, her, her friend are in, in the room being funny. Um, uh, the second image is the um, uh, the world's largest or just pentagram, which is found on the side of a desolate lake in Kazakhstan. And then the third one is the earliest form of a swastika, which is in the form of a geoglyph from about maybe, yeah, 8th century BCE again, uh, found in the Turugai steppe. So I introduce my book on Astana by showing you a pyramid, a pentagram, and a swastika. And I say, ha, the thought of the land of Borat is not at all what it really is. Um, and then this becomes the, the way of um, taking us on an odyssey of human origins. I begin with um, the flight out of Africa right to the building of the, the World Expo site. And so there's um, uh, here I uh, myth is is just a way I, I describe the myths uh, at the same way applying uh, hi- historical archaeological, uh, knowledge and and discovery. So it's a pyramid, a pentagram, and a swastika. So what? They're gay Satan worshiping Nazis. <laughs> For space. Right, right, right. No, but the, these monuments were were carved three thousand years ago, right? So uh, I know. I the the thing of it is, is anytime somebody hears the word swastika, it's just automatically racist. They yeah. they have no idea what up. Well, that exactly, and that was my what a fil- they have no idea what a fill thought is, right? You know, here here's the thing: is that that's why I was so uh, um, I so motivated to write this book is because it superficially it has every single uh, um, uh, element of contrived conspiracy theory around it, and yet that is not at all the uh, the deeper reading of it. 
whether people want to explore the deeper uh, reading of it um, is is curious. That's why I'm intrigued to be on your show because it seems that you don't look at at subjects in the same way that say typical quote unquote conspiracy theorists would. Instead, you look at them through a a rational lens. Yes, I definitely, I I definitely well, Chris and I, if if you listen to. Um, the the thing of it is is I, I guarantee if someone heard our sh- heard our calls for the first time, and people have done this, they turn it off you know within five minutes because they'll think we're totally out of our minds. But if you were to listen to it for a longer period of time, you'd actually start hearing some rational discussion about certain subjects, right? And the reason is is because is be. You know, there's very sensationalized things with cons- with quote unquote conspiracy theories, which I think are put out there on purpose. Um, and then the actual things that are part of a deeper control within society are are totally neglected. Like, like the stuff that Chris and I talk about. Like, there are. There's there's stuff out there like nobody nobody ever talks about this stuff and and how how um you know how culture changes and that's the deeper that's the deeper thing that you know underlying it. it's not about um, Adam Weishaupt in 1776 I mean it, it is to a certain level but it's those those things are are um. Those are things put out there. Uh, Chris and, and another guy uh, used to talk about is what we call conspiracy candy. Candy. Conspiracy yeah, conspiracy candy. candy. Yeah. Okay. Well, I hear, I here's it. here might be an example that kind of would uh, give you an idea. Like, so to suggest that, which I I do from time to time, I suggest that maybe John F. Kennedy wasn't even shot. Maybe that it was um, put it was put on it was theatrics for the public and that sounds preposterous on his face I understand that but going into it with the background that we provide by you know bringing out all the connections showing you how you know Joe Kennedy was the founder of RKO uh, in the film and then the you know the Zapruder film was all handled and it came out the, the first person that people set on it eyes on it is after what it, what it was uh, developed at the Jamieson Film Company in Texas the Hollywood of Texas but um, not that that's proof but mm. then it but examining all that stuff that circumstantial evidence in the light of the power of myth and why myth is so important and why then once you understand that you in and how important it is then when you come into the idea that okay was the jfk assassination stage well once you understand the power of myth and then also couple with that the necessity to absolutely control the narrative so that whatever is coming out is going to follow a a certain script that is Mm -hmm. going to be serving the mythology or the ideas that you want to convey to the public because it's it because the main uh, consideration is shaping and molding the mass mind. It's not, and 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 I'm going into it not with the idea because I from my examination of uh, and in in stuff John showed me and we've talked about before we've 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 looked into like like the presidency 
And the idea that 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 individual like Trump is actually running an entire country, if you look at all the circumstantial evidence, even which is admitted out there, like how much TV he watches a day, how much time he spends on the golf course, that idea is absurd, really. And then the idea Mm -hmm. that they rotate these people out every four to eight years, it's nonsense. I don't I don't believe that the president runs the country. I think that's a preposterous idea. But but the other other thing about. The other thing about it is, is there will be people out there who will believe in aliens, and believe that you know, the the adepts of Adam Weishaupt still run the run the entire planet, but they would think that we're crazy. Yeah, when it, you know, about <laughs> ten, I was in um, Ingolstadt, which is the birthplace of the Illuminati. And uh, I went to the Stadt Museum and met with the chief archivist. And I introduced myself as follows. I said, I'm here to look at the original writings of the Bavarian Order of the Illuminati. Now, I was expecting his answer would be like, oh my gosh, you are one of the countless thousands of people that have come here in search of of these documents. And instead, what he did was, is he uh, pulled his glasses down, looked at me very sternly and said, I've worked here for 30 years and you are the second person to have asked for them. And we spent the afternoon looking at the uh, original writings in German of um, uh, the Illuminati. I actually found um, one of the early pieces of Illuminati art that was published in the book called The Perfectibilists. Um, There was credit um, uh, to me finding it um, in the Stadt Museum. And he ended up giving me the address of the first Illuminati Lodge. But my point in in sharing this anecdotal story is that here I thought that of all the uh, uh, perpetuation uh, uh, ubiquity of the Illuminati that you find everywhere on the net, I was only the second person in 30 years to actually go to Ingolstadt and look at the original writings. That's how easy it is to perpetuate a myth. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Right. Well, most of, most of the conspiracy writers, you'll you'll find this. We, we've talked about this multiple times on 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 these calls. Is is the conspiracy writers copy each other? Exactly. So, yeah. so <laughs> if if some if someone says yeah. in a book, if, it's like if if they said you know um, you know Chris Kendall. You know, after after he died, it came, you know, I, I write some expose on Chris here, and I say Chris was a member of the Illuminati, and then five other books read, you know, authors read my book, and then they put that in a book. Then your yeah. source be- material. <laughs> That's it. Yeah, it, yeah, it becomes fact, and I've actually proven that myself by doing that with with uh, authors. Um, I won't. I won't name any names, but um, they're very. They, they sell books at Barnes and Noble, and they get lots and lots of sales. Mm-hmm. And they talk about. Uh, they talk about shape shifting lizards. I know exactly. Oh, of course, I know the David Icke, the Jim Mars. I mean, they're all just re- regurgitating their same uh, um, garbage uh, material. Uh, let's let's just call it what it is. I mean, it's not uh, um, hi- historically rigorous. And funnily enough, if you really look at what the Illuminati is doing in 1776, they are not at all the the, the current fantasia that we we have um, 
betrayed on, on us today. They're about the equivalent of 1960s Berkeley flower power. What was Adam Weishaupt setting out to do? He was a very young, charismatic professor who was the first professor of, of, of canon law, non-theological uh, uh, non law, um, who had a smart group of students around him where he was trying to introduce to them the, the idea of published writings on the geography of the earth, the uh, Immanuel Kant, uh, uh, other, other uh, ideas that were well in circulation in Britain and in uh, Amsterdam, but were not circulated in the Catholic hegemony of Bavaria. So he was trying and to get his students to go out there and look at this material. But in order to get them engaged, he had to create a, uh, a fellowship. And then the fellowship had as, as its agency a way of, of subversively uh, attacking government and the institutions of government. And so when I look at Occupy Wall Street and, you know, I don't know more and, and Berkeley Flower Power, all of that is far closer to the Illuminati than uh, um, the the people that call it out for being some you know globally run institution. It began as a students' guild. They were students of a of a professor who were trying to read enlightened works and, and you know and trying to poison the political enemies. It was funny, but um, uh, the the Illuminati as we know it today in its current guise is absolutely nothing at all to do with the somewhat noble agenda of the Illuminati in 1776. Well, in any case there, there, they are, uh, yeah, there, there is this, uh, mythos surrounding the, the, the so-called Illuminati. And there's this, uh, it's just this notion that there's this, collective group that actually runs things which i i believe that ex I, I believe exist but uh it, it I, I think there's also benefit in creating uh mystique around uh, around this group whoever they may be and mm. i think that goes a lot of this uh mythology is being created around it surrounding this group and uh, I think that the with, with the intent of making themselves appear unassailable, uh, just you know, you know, shrouded in all this mystique and mystery, and then that I, I think by way of that, by you know, and understanding the power of myth, they can they can magnify their uh, status. And it's it's interesting now that so many people. That, I mean that. Uh, Illuminati word is on so many people's tongues. You know, it's like it's something now that's like uh, I, I I've, yeah I followed uh, so-called you know conspir conspiratorial view of history for some time since I was probably in my early uh, mid twenties, early twenties. Uh, so I'm f almost fifty now, and uh, I don't I, back when I first started looking into stuff. I I I I would rarely run across anybody else of the same kind of. Uh, mindset. O occasionally, I would, but they were kind of into it to varying degrees. Uh, uh, Maybe kind of some cursory investigation into some things, but uh, it, it. But recently, it seems like it has uh, really kind of gone mainstream to at least some extent. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's also the the there's uh, the writings of uh, Helena Blavatsky that the Theosophist had uh, stated in one of her books I forget which one that said that 
there'll be uh, what she calls an externalization, externalization of the hierarchy, where there's the, it's part of the program to expose the real ruling powers behind the scenes that will kind of uh, unveil themselves in in a you know in a systematic way, as not to you know spook the herd, but you know to introduce them to the ideas it seems like that's we're going into that phase or, or have been going into that phase and probably that was initiated you know even before i was born and i just kind of was an maybe an early adopter of the these ideas you know like a lot of a lot of people out there are but uh it it uh I, it, it maybe it's in- indicative of of the you know, so-called civilization. I think that is what we're talking about a lot. Like, what you know, what exactly is it? I, 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 I spend a lot of time trying to, um, you know, suss all that out and try to try to keep that as kind of a, a an ongoing uh, theme in in my talks, uh, my mm-hmm. discussions of things, and kind of you know referencing uh, Jacques Ellul and uh, did, did, uh, you know Marshall McHugh and different you know social critics. Mm-hmm. That made a lot of good points um, about this thing called civilization, and uh, it 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 it. Um, oh, did we lose John? Did he drop off, or did he say yeah. he had to go? Yeah, and and uh, in fact, I I have to depart uh, myself. This self, this has been uh, riveting. I wasn't yeah. expecting to go on. Oh no, this is excellent. Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to have to uh, do it again. Uh, hopefully, and uh, yeah, it was yeah. I have to I have to put on the brakes because I'll get I'll get uh, diarrhea of the mouth and I'll just run run off on <laughs> t- different tangents. But um, yeah, so uh, really good. And your your material is at uh, frankalbo.com. That's correct. Uh, a l is it a l b o right? Yep, that's right. And and Frank uh, standard spelling f r a n k albo.com. And uh, so, how long has your book been out, by the way? It uh, it just just came out last month, so oh, okay. it's 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 fresh there. And um, uh, if I hadn't mentioned it already, there 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 is a um, there it is a coded book. It's multivalent. It's uh, it's got a lot of um, uh, breathtaking photography and imagery of this this capital city. But it's also um, rich in um, uh, historical, archaeological, genetic research. It's uh, you could you could turn the page at any page, and I'm, I'm sure there's a um, something that would make you go, hmm, "I did not know this about um, that facet of the world." I didn't know anything about it until I got the email, and it's like, "Okay, what is this? Okay, what is this?" Because I, I, you know, I get different emails, and I don't know. What, what they are and uh sometimes i get just it's just uh kind of spam or whatever but i was you know so i was checking it out i said wait a minute i never even heard of this what is this place and i was just blown <laughs> away by it i was like that's the thing too it's like this idea that gets batted around that that secrets can't be kept and here is this city i i think <laughs> it's it make it puts dubai to shame but everybody's like raging oh, totally oh a hundred percent Oh, it's like Dubai, Dubai Dushmai. No, this really, is, yeah. uh, this is. <laughs> I, was, I was like, yeah, truly. what, you know, what, why has, I haven't heard of this. And even, you know, especially with a lot of the stuff that I talk about. 
And then, you know, here's LK. See, here, no, does the news make, no. See, like, and then, you know, you're out of the loop on this. You know, generally, the average person, you know, doesn't, is unaware. But then here, you know, you know here we go. And then the World Expo, by the way, 2017 yeah. going on right now there. You know, it's like, right. well, shit. Like, what, you know, what what is this place and what's it about? But, yeah, it's, it's absolutely fascinating, man. And, uh, I, I, yeah, I, I want to check your book out and, uh, I, I think that um, it is just the architecture. Anybody's interested in architecture alone? I mean, look at this this place. You got to check this out. It's unbelievable. It's just it's it's outrageous. Um, oh, real quick, I, I don't want to keep going on and on, but have you heard of uh, Scott Onstott? You yes. Okay. He, so he he did. Um, uh, I know he did a very long um, uh, video series called Secrets and Plain. Insight, and apparently, a, a good portion of it was based on my previous book, which was called *The Hermetic Code* on the uh, Manitoba Legislative Building. And he reached out to me recently because he wrote a, or maybe, a, yeah, I think we're, we're friends on Facebook, and, and um, so we traded books. He just he just wrote a book, or maybe it's been in circulation called *Tripartite*, and I sent him uh, *Astana*. And being that he's interested in, in deciphering buildings and architecture i said you know give this a give this a crack oh wow man you guys got to get together i could uh host it if you want or whatever i mean yeah you guys need to get together and have a sure have a knockdown drag out discussion I, I think that'd be great that'd be awesome uh so you guys planning on it or is it in the works or still no yeah in it? oh yeah how about set it up yeah go ahead oh, yeah. that sounds good to me yeah, I'll, I'll, uh, I haven't been in contact with the guy, but I'll, I'll fire off a email. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that he would, uh, be interested. I'm at I mean, based on what I've heard, and what I've gathered so far about your material, definitely. And like he you said, guys have been in contact. So I, I, I know that for a fact he's reading the book. Awesome. Cool, man. Uh, yeah. So, uh, well, I'll, I'll I guess we'll, we could wrap it up here and, uh, and and again check out uh frank's site frankalbo.com and take a look at that book and take a look at those images it's really it's really something else man i mean yeah i i i don't get uh i don't get shocked too much but that was really really uh <laughs> i i was really amazed by that i as and the yeah and the insides of those buildings too wow man i mean mm -hmm. it's really something but uh well, I really appreciate it. You come Thank on you for and sharing your time. this. And uh, I, I look forward to our, our next chat and with or without Scott, but that uh, I'm up for it. All right. That sounds really good. Okay. Uh, you have a good night. You too. Take care. Okay. Take Bye care. to you both.